Okay. So in summary, basically, we looked at um, a satisfying love, which is how the book begins, right? And the first section of the book invites us to, to enjoy the unconditional love of God, which is the only thing, which is the only kind of wine that has the capacity to satisfy us without endangering us or enslaving us. And we saw the qualities of God's love and um, what it takes for us to stand effectively and enjoy the fullness of that love. And then we looked at the sanctifying aspect of the love of God, which Kweku led us through on Saturday morning, which was that even though God's love skips over mountains and hills to come to us, it doesn't, God doesn't seem capable of jumping over the walls that we set up between ourselves and him. And instead he reserves for himself a window and through that window, he whispers to us and says, come away. And um, if we decide that we don't want to come away and take up the foxes that spoil the vine with Jesus, like we saw with the Shulamite, it will affect our experience of intimacy with him. There's a level of enjoyment of Christ that we will not step into until we're willing to pick up the cross daily and to follow him, to continue in his word. But then from the third section on, the language of the book shifted, shifts dramatically from my satisfaction, my fulfillment to his fulfillment. And this is when Solomon unveils himself as a king when he comes for the wedding with the Shulamite. And then we saw that um, the third thing that sustains the, the vibrancy of our love for God is keeping his return, the return of Christ always in front of us. So we said, the first thing is the record of God's love. We must always return to the record of his love, which is historical, is factual, is positional. The second thing is we must be grounded in the reality of God's love. So even though what Christ did is past tense, there is an organic present tense activity in our hearts that is beyond your feelings that you can always bank upon. And if you, if you are the kind of Christian who builds your experience on top on the record and the reality of the love of God, your love would wax stronger and stronger and you remain grounded. But we said that as we get closer to the close of the age, um, lawlessness will abound so much. It will be easier to be in sin than to be in faith. So much so that unless you place the return of Christ in front of you, you may not see reason to go with him to the mountain of mere and the heel of frankincense, which represents um, the death, the consecration, the cutting off of certain things that Jesus wants so that we can have more of his life, so that our garden can begin to produce the spices and the wine that can satisfy his heart. And we saw what happens when we do not respond to this call of God. You know, we, when we decide to stay at one level of satisfaction, we see that it can lead to some kind of dissonance in our experience of God. And the way out of such dissonance is the word of our testimony. So um, the moment the Shulamites began to describe her lover to those who she met on the outside, oh, he's the first amongst 10,000. By the time she was done with it, she found out that she herself was satisfied. And we said that the gospel is one of the weapons of our warfare. Paul says that your feet have to always be prepared, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So 
the word of your testimony, your, your ability to communicate the good things that Christ has wrought in you, the beauty that he is to you, is one of your defenses in, the, in a time of spiritual dryness. And much more is God's strategy for drawing several other people to himself. Okay. And this is where the story stopped in chapter 6, verse, the last verse of chapter 6 is 13. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. Um, and yeah, we ended by saying that the place where God wants us to be planted is our gardens, which is, which like Stephanie said, is our space, our time, and our lives. And when the wind blows this year, we will not be afraid whether it's a south wind or the north wind, whether it's a good wind or a bad wind, because whichever case it is, it's only going to blow the spices that we have built up in secret with Jesus. And it's only going to be for our promotion. Um, so now that the Shulamite has embraced this calling of God um, to, to, to be his representative, to carry the gospel um, everywhere she goes, to be a reflection of the love that saved her, to be bold, to be willing to go the distance with Jesus, to be willing to identify with him even in his death, like Paul says in Philippians 3. Now that she has embraced this life, from except from chapter 7, we will see that she has she will step into a, a different layer of enjoyment of the Lord. All of this is trying to wrap up the third layer, which is our high calling, because our main focus for today is the fourth and final layer of, of the book. So I will need someone to help us read chapter seven. Today, who would like to volunteer to read for us? I'll read. Okay, thank you, Terence. All right, verse one. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O princess daughter. The caves of your thighs are like jewels. The work of your hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of gazelle, of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools in the Hezbon, I don't know, is it by the gate of Bath Rabim? Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks down Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Camel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are. Oh, love, oh, love, with your delights, love desires. This stature of yours is like the palm tree, and your breast is like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breast be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, the woman, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of slippers. She speaks to him, I am my beloved, I am my beloved, and his desire is towards me. The bride gives her love. Come, my beloved, 
Let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Should I continue? Yeah, continue. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine had, has bowed, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes give, give off a fragrance and at our gates are the pleasant fruits, all manner new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. Okay, can you read chapter eight from verse one to four? Chapter eight, okay. Oh, that you were like my brother who nest at my mother's breast. If I shall find you outside, I will kiss you. I will not be despised. I will lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She, sorry, to my mother. She who used to instruct me. I will cause you to drink of spiced wine, of the juice of my mangrenate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Okay, thank you very much, Terence. Um, so like we've said, you see that this charge closes a certain section, which is a section we've been studying right from verse six of chapter three. And like you may have noticed, there's very little that's spiritual about chapter seven. What's the what the bridegroom is admiring, like the bridegroom is renewing his love as it were for, for the bride, for the Shulamites. So the Shulamites is experiencing a different dimension of satisfaction. And we have said this dimension of satisfaction, of feeling, of, of praise from the bridegroom is a result of her willingness to go out with him, to, to um, lay, beside, lay aside her comforts, lay beside her reputation, and take up the cross more publicly and identify with him and carry the gospel on her lips. Verse one says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. So we know that this same expression is used in Isaiah chapter 52, where the Bible says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring glad tidings. And in the New Testament, this scripture is referenced as referring to the glad tidings of the gospel. And so there is a certain level of intimacy with Jesus that is reserved for those who take it upon themselves to be his witnesses, who, who have arrived at that place where self has completely been, been laid to death, where consecration has completed its work and all that's in front of them is the will of the Father. There is no, there is no trace of, of ambition. They're not doing what they're doing because um, you know, Jesus will benefit and they will benefit, but it's all about him at this point in time. And everything the master praises about the bride is purely romantic praises. I won't tell you that there's something, there's a hidden meaning behind your novel. It's a rounded goblet. It's just poetic, poetic license that, the, that Solomon is exercising here in, in showering praise um, and renewing the love that he has with this, with this damsel. Um, and he praises her 
and says that she's she's beautiful. Um, but one thing I want to point out to us is in verse 10. He says, I am my beloved, and his desire is towards me. Um, if you remember, at the, at the time when, G, when, when the lover introduced the Shulamite to his love at the beginning, it was a very, um, I, should I call it a very self-centered love? You know, it was about her satisfaction. In chapter 2, verse 16, she says, my beloved is mine. But now in verse 10 of chapter 7, her love has gone past that stage where it's about her and it's about the desire of the Lord. And so her confidence is no longer in her ability to pursue Jesus or to hold on to Jesus. But her confidence is in the fact that Jesus now holds on to her. He says, I am my beloved. I've seen that even though I've come very far with God, I can still be unreliable. So I'm not going to base my confidence. I'm not going to base my beauty on what I am. I'm going to base it on what's on, on, on the pleasure that comes to his heart because of my life. She says his desire is towards me. Um, and she begins to speak. You see, what God wants to do with us ultimately is that he wants to bring us to the place of complete oneness with him. So that a time comes, you know, when you are a child, in, in, in natural terms, right? You, you want to take permission for everything. You want, to, you want to find out what is acceptable and what is not. But the reality is that a time comes when you have become so united in love with the spirit of God that God can now invest. will of God. Because now it's as if the, the master has put the Shulamite in charge of vineyards because she is at the place where, where her, her complete existence is dedicated to the will of the master. She says, let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom there I will give you my love. So she has gotten to the point where her satisfaction comes from bringing satisfaction to the Lord. What I'm trying to show us that's happening here is that this is the result of her willingness to go out and to respond to that high calling, to embrace the pathway of consecration, to, to, to dedicate her life to that which brings external physical glory to the Lord. Um, and you can say at this point that she has reached the climax of, of, of her union because what began as my satisfaction, my sins forgiven, um, my needs met, have now completely been transformed into his desire, his satisfaction, his needs met, his vineyards. And you see, this was the kind of posture that Jesus took that gave the father the confidence to invest all fullness in him. And friends, just in case you're looking for a map for where God is taking you, this is the map for, for where God is taking you. And it's not the kind of thing you force. It flows out of a heart of love. A day comes when you are so saturated with God that all you see is his work and his will and your life is dedicated to it. And so this is where this third section ends um, with, with her resting in the newfound satisfaction that she has in her Lord because of her complete dedication to him. 
There is no one who surrenders everything to Jesus. That's, <laughs> that in the grand scheme of things, that surrender can be termed as a waste. There is always an equal measure, if not a greater measure of enjoyment from Jesus that comes into your life. Um, yes, there are pleasures in God's, at God's right hand. And only those who are bold enough to take that leap of faith and follow God into where he's leading can come into the fullness of those pleasures. And finally, in the final section of this book, we begin to see the one thing that is left, right? After you have, in theory, come into this fullness or this perfection of love with Jesus, you would wonder, okay, if, if I've truly become one where my life is truly on the altar, what is left? You know, what's remaining? What's the final part? And before we read the verse, I would like to ask you, what do you think is left when you have gotten to this point of complete union with the Lord, complete oneness? You've discovered why he saved you. You are living for this purpose now. He's at the center of your life now. What is left? If we don't understand what's left, we may not understand why this fourth and final section is important and why it has some very intense language. But think about the, the sections that we have talked about, right? We said, first of all, you, you need to have an appreciation of the record of the love of God, which is his name that's like an, that's like an ointment poured out for you. Then you need to have an experience of the reality of his love, which is found in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But the time comes when you need to fix your gaze on the high calling on the fact that he's coming for a kingdom, he's coming for a spotless bride, and you fix your gaze on his return. And it is this kind of singly focused life that comes into full oneness with the Lord in his desires. But then there is a final section. What do you think? Okay, so Terence, can you read for us? from verse five to verse seven. Okay. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awaken you under the ample, sorry, apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. She set me Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames, its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it will be utterly despised. If Thank a you. man would give for all for love all the wealth of his house, it will utterly be despised. Thank you. So, what level of love is this? Or what level of ex of spiritual experience is this? I think that's a better way to put it. I know that the book of Song of Songs is a bit hard to interpret, so let's take it slowly. There's something in the chat, invincible, <laughs> the invincible mode of love. 
Okay. What makes it invincible? Okay. So verse five says, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. So as you can see, first of all, this section is not coming either from the either from the Shulamite or from the bridegroom or from the king. This is coming from a third party observer. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? And the first question to ask is, what wilderness is this, right? Because in a sense, um, the Shulamite has gone through her wilderness seasons, the seasons where she didn't experience the love of Christ that was hers because of her hesitance, if you like, to embrace the path of sanctification or to embrace the path of consecration or to embrace the path of shame or which is inherently built into the cross. She has, she has gone through all of those phases and she has come out of it. But then there is a picture of her coming from the wilderness. So the next thing that, or rather the, the experience that remains to seal our love is the experience of the redemption of our bodies. It's the experience of the resurrection from the dead. This is the first, and in my view, the most viable interpretation of this section is that what we have moved into now is the resurrection story. In fact, these three verses give, give you a glimpse of what that transition would be from earth into the immortal realm, from, from, from earth, from the physical dimension of existence into a completely spiritual dimension of existence. If you are not um, on earth when Jesus returns, which in the end of the day is going to be most Christians throughout history. And so the wilderness represents this body of earth because when you come into fullness with God, when you come into oneness with God, your only limitation is going to be this body of earth. You're going to find that the body still has its own agenda. You're going to find that the body is prone to, is vulnerable, is prone to weakness, is prone to sickness. Um, it does not, you have so much beauty and capacity in your garden, but your body cannot take any of it. And you'll be groaning to put off this body. You'll be groaning to come into a higher level of existence. And so the existence in this body is compared to a wilderness experience. And so this is a picture of her passing from, of her passing from life through death to life. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? We can look at um, what I mean in some verses that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Paul says, or verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with bed pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, we groan within ourselves. Are you groaning, friends? <laughs> or are you fully satisfied with the status quo? We groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. And he tells us what the adoption, the adoption is, the redemption of our bodies. You see, a time is going to come when the current limit, limitations that are, that are yours because of your physical body, the way it is built, your gender, whatever it is, those limitations are going to be removed. And what is fit today will become sight in that day. In fact, the New Testament calls believers who have gotten into that state, the spirits of just men made perfect. It's a kind of wilderness, right? 
And then look at what the, um, the Shulamite cries out in that state. He says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Um, you see, it's at the point when we cross over from this physical realm of existence into the heavenly one that once saved will become forever saved because she's crying out, set me as a seal on your heart. So she wants her lover or Christ or God to set her as a seal on, in, two, in two parts of, of, of him, of, upon his heart and upon his arm, right? His heart is the locus of his love. That's the center of his love. And his arm is the locus of his power of his is the locus of his strength and so she's saying that i want to be i want to be as everlasting as a seal upon your heart and i want to be as indestructible as a seal upon your arm set me as a seal it is it is at this point when you cross over that one save truly becomes forever safe because it is as everlasting as a seal on the heart of god it's as indestructible as a seal upon his arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave, right? How strong is death? Do you realize that the tears of your loved ones cannot move death's heart? You know, it's, death does not respond to people's tears. Just in case you go for a burial and you bring a very eloquent preacher to, to elucidate all the reasons why you should come back to why the person who's about to be buried should come back to life. If you have lost someone before, you know that the grave does not even flicker. That's how demanding it is. It is not even satisfied. Death doesn't say, okay, 1 million people of human population died yesterday, so that's enough. It just keeps taking and taking. There is no depth to how much it is willing to take. It says it's flames, and the flames of love are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. One thing I hope that you've seen throughout our study is in Ephesians chapter three, Paul speaks about the dimensions of love. And he tells us that if you can comprehend with all the saints, what is the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of God, that if you can comprehend it, that you can be filled with all the fullness of God. Now think about it. I don't know what your hope is. Maybe you are like some of us, you know, you've seen some very highly anointed people and, and this is your goal, that you want to be as anointed as this person or perhaps more anointed than this person. That's not a good enough hope compared to the hope that Paul held on to. He says, you can be filled with the fullness of Christ. So definitely when he's talking about the dimensions of love, um, he's thinking about a cube or a cuboid or something that has volume, something that can be filled in a sense. And we have seen the height of God in the high calling, right? We've seen, or rather the height of the love of God in the high calling. It's, 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 it's higher than the highest height on the earth. We've seen the depth of God in the satisfaction, how much it can meet the deepest needs of each of us. We've seen the length of the love of God in terms of how far it is willing to go to save the sinner. When we read about, I am black but beautiful, um, and the love of God does not relent in terms of how far it's willing to go. It, it comes skipping upon mountains and 
and doing all of that. But this is telling us now about the capacity or the width of God's love, right? Um, it can fill you. It can set you on fire. And then it tells us that when it sets you on fire, many waters, many waters, nor can the floods drown it. Many waters cannot quench it. The floods represent everything Satan throws at you. Because the Bible says that when the enemy arises like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise a standard against him. So it doesn't matter what comes up against you. There is a measure of love that can come into your spirit that can um, overcome that, that river, that river of affliction or whatever it is. And so primarily these verses are giving us a picture of the redemption of our bodies. They're giving us a picture of the resurrection and the permanence to our salvation that will be a result of our resurrection. So just in case you have thoughts of the day when I'm lying on my deathbed, um, what will it look like? Just come to this song and sing this song. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. But you see, this scripture is not only referring to an experience that we're going to have sometime in the future. It's actually referring to a posture that we can maintain right now in the present, in the present, because it says, who is this coming from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? It's, it's speaking of a life of dependence and it's telling us that God wants to bring us to the place where we are totally dependent on him. And that it is that kind of orientation that will add a permanence to, to our salvation, that will add a permanence to our love, that will ensure that we are always saturated with the consuming fire of God, that we are always saturated with the love of God, a life of leaning upon him. So she has realized that if I'm going to finish this race, it's not going to be by my strength because I thank God that I'm strong. I thank God for all that he has wrought in me, but I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and be confused about where the source of my ability to finish is coming from. Set me as a seal upon your heart. Set me as a seal upon your arm for your love is as strong as death. If I'm going to finish, it's going to be by your grace. If I'm going to excel in my career, it's going to be by your grace. If I'm going to be a sufficient witness for you in my generation, it's going to be by your grace. If my love will not wax cold in the midst of the iniquity around me, it's not going to be because I made up my mind to do something or not do something. It's going to be by your grace. She has recognized that everything that she would be will be sustained by the grace of God. You see, friends, um, there's something we cannot control about ourselves, and that is our mortality, in a sense. And by mortality, I don't necessarily mean the fact that we're going to die, which is part of it. But our mortality talks speaks to our finiteness. A time is going to come where you're going to be faced with your insufficiency. That's another way to put it. You're going to meet with a situation that, humanly speaking, you have reached the end of your situation. And there's something Paul says that we can do in those moments. Those moments are going to come. Maybe you're going to get into a difficult position at work that you need to navigate. And there's no human wisdom that is sufficient to navigate successfully. Paul says, for we know, in 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if our earthly house distant is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, 
For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So even right now, mortality can be swallowed up by life because when that situation stares you in the face and there's no solution, it's not the time for despair. I mean, you can despair, but despair is not going to fix the problem. According to Paul, it's the time to groan. It's the time to groan. And you see, when you're groaning, you may not necessarily be able to make articulate sense. But what matters is not how much sense you're making to yourself or to someone what matters is that you are clothed. There's a clothing that can come upon you that can enable you walk through darkness. That can enable you walk through the thing that you have to face in every season of your life. Paul says that we groan. So just in case you look at your family and you see situations that are in contradiction to the promise of God, that's an invitation to groan because the groaning is an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to clothe you to place a garment upon you that will enable you to walk through that season. And God can consume you so much that many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. Any contributions to this? I would like to hear your thoughts. Any questions here? Any contributions? Um, the parts where you said this old thing is not just about a time in the future, but something that can become a reality from now, which is the groaning, um, makes perfect sense to me. Okay, thank you, Mary. The Bible says that the flames of the love of God, <laughs> they are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Do you know that you can carry a flame that nothing can quench? In fact, let me show you what happened to Moses, a story that all of us know, Exodus chapter 3. The Bible says that now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. <laughs> Why the bush does not burn. So a bush was set ablaze by flame, but that flame did not consume it. And this is very important. This is how God wants to set us ablaze. Every time that God invites us to a life of sanctification, you know, when God says, I want you to stop something, you know, like for example, I want you to stop drinking wine, for example, random example, or I want you to stop watching something, right? It's very similar to when God said to Abraham, sacrifice your son, Isaac. So when we look at that scenario, you discover that God's interest was not really in killing Isaac. I mean, what there was practically no benefit in that happening. And so it's important for us to see that um, because it's, if we don't understand this, it's possible for us to fall into legalism or it's possible for us to completely reject any kind of discipline from God and just go on a liberal path. But what God was saying to him is that I want you to give up this thing 
not because this thing itself is sinful, but because I, I want to consume you. I want to have more room. I want to have more space. I want to set you ablaze. God is not interested in dead sacrifices. He's interested in a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice, but it's a life. That's the kind of life that can express God to a generation. That's the kind of life that can reveal him. That when men and women look at your life, they will marvel. It's a flame. It is burning. But somehow it's not consumed, you know. For some reason, our version of holiness that we have taught is the kind of holiness that both burns us and consumes us. So that when people look at us, they are very sure they don't want to be like us. You know, that's not um, the intention of God. Because the Bible says that without holiness, no man shall see God. And one of the things that that scripture means is that our holiness is the opportunity for people to see God. It's a, it's a flame that can consume us. We are supposed to be like this bush. The effect that this bush had on Moses was that it turned him. A man that was running from God for 40 years, a flame was lit. Something was burning but was not consumed and he turned. And this was the kind of witness that John the Baptist was supposed to bring because the prophecy about him was that he was going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And how did he achieve that, that prophecy? He was a burning and a shining light. He burned and he shined, yet he was not consumed. Um, God wants us to be a sacrifice, but yet to remain alive, you know, to continue interacting with this world, to continue in business, to continue in academia, to continue in the things that God has called us to do, but to do them with everything about them laid on the altar. And there is, there is fire in heaven sufficient to prosecute such a life. The Bible says, that its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Friends, one of the things that holiness or sanctification means is that we are saturated with God. A time comes when we are so drenched in the will of... This is what happened to Enoch. <laughs> he worked with God so much and it became so intense one day that he couldn't continue. Um, but it's God's intention that we stay actually in that intensity and relate with the world and find ways to 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 shine that light brightly to the world that's why Enoch's experience has hardly been repeated with anybody else because God's intention is that we stay we stay okay um can you read for us Terence from verse 8 to verse 10 okay we have a little sister and she has no breast what shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for. If she is a war, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts like towers. Then I, I became in his eyes as one of one who found peace. Mm-hmm. Should I continue? Yeah, this is fine for now. So if you if you look at this um, verse of scripture and you reflect upon it, you realize that its positioning in this chapter is a bit surprising because we know that the book itself is about two primary actors, right? It's about the Shulamite and Solomon, her lover. Um, but then um, we are now reading about a little sister, which this person has not been mentioned throughout the book. Um, so it is... In the context of this book, it's very safe to assume that this is a flashback. Because if you remember in 
the very first chapter of this book, she, the Shulamite mentioned that she had siblings, right? And that they made her um, keep up the vineyards and this prevented her from keeping her own vineyard. So she had siblings who were a little aggressive towards her and towards who she was, right? So this is more like a throwback or a reference to that time. And we can see here that she's remembering how she was. So they said, they said concerning her, which is what they would typically say in prehistoric times when they had a sister. So we have a little sister, right? She has no breast, so she's young. And when, as like when women were young, they were already thinking of who they could betroth them to in marriage. And so they're asking, what shall we do for our sister in the day when she's spoken of? If she's a war, meaning that if she, if she's still a virgin, basically, if she's chaste and if she's noble, we'll build upon her abutment of silver. We would ensure that we um, continue to protect her even more so that we can present her um, in the way that she should be before, be, before her wedding day. And then he says, if she's the door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. So if she's more promiscuous in this culture, they were planning to... <laughs> They were planning to um, find ways to constrain her so that she could be ready for marriage. And so she's, re she's recalling that time how she was despised by her brothers. And she's telling them, I know you guys had all kinds of thoughts about me because of the path that God called me to follow. But I want to tell you that I am a wall. I was a wall and I'm still a wall. I kept myself chaste and my breasts like towers. And then something changed about me. I became in his eyes as one who found peace. What changed about me was the encounter I had with Solomon. So that's what these verses are saying. And we can read the final verses from 11 to 14. Okay. Solomon had a vanguard at Baal Hamon. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. Should I continue? Yeah, to the end. Okay, sure. You who dwell in the gardens. The champions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. The companions listen for your voice. Sorry, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Okay, yeah. So this is part of her recalling process. Solomon had a vineyard at Balhamon. He leased the vineyard to keep us. Everything that God has committed into our hands, friends, is leased to us. Um, and this is reflecting on the day of judgment, to the day of judgment when um, we're going to, God is going to ask us to give account of the things that we did in the body. And if you continue reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we read earlier, Paul expands a little more on this idea of judgment for believers, right? Um, think about it. What has what do you consider to be yours? According to Solomon, or according to this book, it has been leased to you. 
And when we, in Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about the parable, the parable of the talents, we saw that he wasn't satisfied with the one who buried his talent. He says, I knew that you were wicked, you reap what you didn't sow, so I buried it. And Jesus said, no, no, if you knew that I was such a profiteering person, you could have put it in the bank, right? And the question that always lies before us is, is what are we going to do with our one talent? Right? Because the person who has one talent or the person who thinks they only have one talent is the person who is most in danger. That's the person who is most likely to just remain passive and keep waiting for a big break or something like this. But the Shulamite says that my own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand and those who tend its fruit, 200. So it is my vineyard. It is leased to me, so it has become mine. But you, O Christ, you, O Solomon, who have a thousand silver coins, you would have the greatest share. It will be that which you desire from my gifts will, will I give to you. Friends, God has committed to each of us vineyards to keep, and those vineyards represent areas of gifting. If your garden represents the totality of your life, your space and time, your vineyard represents your particular areas of gifting where God is hoping that wine will flow um, onto his glory for the nations. And the question is, whose vineyard will it be, right? Whose whose glory will be seen through this vineyard. Some people um, became enemies of God with the same gifting that he gave to them. Some people became passive. Some people turned back from God with the same gifting that he gave to them. But the question is, whose vineyard will it be? It, it is before you, it has been leased to you, but it's important that you turn it back to God. And one of the things that God will have us do this year is to be deliberate about the things that he has placed in us to find them, to locate them, and to use them, to use them. So that in the day of reckoning, there'll be something to present to him. And then the lover, the bridegroom, Christ says, you who dwell in the gardens, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. This is how much God desires to hear our voice. And like I always say, it doesn't matter how you're feeling on a particular day. It doesn't matter if you think that, oh, there's no plan for me or things are not going as I thought. Or maybe even if you think, oh, I'm feeling very good about myself. Things are going like I thought. God longs to hear your voice. What is that need that is upon your heart even right now? What is that insecurity perhaps? God longs to hear your voice. He longs to hear your voice. And the book ends, of course, anticipating the return of the Lord. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountain of spices. What this final part is trying to show us in essence is that we can be so saturated with God that there becomes a permanence about the love that we have experienced from him. And we, we don't need to be afraid of that process. We need to open up ourselves to it, that we can be clothed even right now, that if we look at ourselves and feel, oh, it's only one talent, or um, I'm not sure what it is that God will have me do, you can be clothed. You can be clothed with a flame that can burn, that can burn brightly and draw many 
to the throne of God. That's what the final part is saying. And it's also saying that one of the things we need to always look forward to is the resurrection, the redemption of our bodies. Okay.